Where is it that you and I find hope? Where do human beings find hope to get through the day and to deal with the hardships of life? Well, here's one example. There was a young boy named Charlie who was in the third grade, and he was horribly burned in a bad house fire. And he was in ICU at the local hospital, and he was not responding to treatment. And he clearly had given up. This poor young boy thought he was going to die. And so he felt hopeless. Now his school teacher, Mrs. Kendrick, knew that Charlie had been hospitalized, but, but for some reason she didn't know any of the details. All she knew was that Charlie was going to be in the hospital for a while and that he was in danger of falling behind the other students. So she decided to visit him and provide some instruction to help him keep up. But when Mrs. Kendrick walked into Charlie's room, she was overwhelmed. This poor young kid was just swathed in bandages, and he was listless and not terribly responsive. But she forged ahead. She tried to be upbeat and encouraging, and she walked through her short little planned lesson about nouns and adverbs. And then she left, but as she did, she was feeling very sad, very discouraged, very defeated, and she wondered, did this visit even matter? Why was I wasting time teaching Charlie about grammar when he might not even live? Well, here's what's fascinating. The very next day, Charlie's attitude was different. He started responding to his nurses. He started responding to his treatment and to his therapy. And, and within two weeks, Charlie clearly was on the road to recovery. So what changed? Here's what Charlie said. Mrs. Kendrick wouldn't teach me about nouns and adverbs if I was going to die, would she? Charlie had been hopeless till his teacher showed up and taught him. And everything changed in that moment. That visit transformed him, and now he had hope. And he had hope that helped him to believe, I'm not going to die. Hope that enabled him to not give up and to keep pressing on. That's a great story, and there's so many others like it that we probably know, which remind us that we all need hope, because hope is what helps us navigate those dark days of life that we all have. Hope is what helps us press on and not give up. And that lesson about hope is so pivotal to the final days of the life of Jesus. He's preparing to go to the cross. That means there's some dark days ahead. But what's amazing to me is at this moment, Jesus' greatest concern is not for himself, but for his followers. He's worried about the dark days they will face. And so when he gathers them together for one final meal, his overriding purpose is to give them a reason to hope. And he does so in a very distinctive way because he takes the ancient ceremony of Passover and he transforms it into this ceremony that we call communion. So this morning we're going to walk through that story of that last meal which became the first communion. And we're actually going to join Jesus and his disciples for part of that final supper. So I want to encourage you to have your bread and cup handy. You don't need to take them out now, but have them handy because later in the message, we're going to all share in communion together. 
And right now we want to set the scene. And so Mike, if you want to come up, Mike is going to read us the account of this last meal of Jesus this morning. And as I said, it comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely, Lord, not I. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Jesus now is heading into the final hours of his life. And he knows what's coming. That's what's so amazing. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that he's going to shortly experience the pain and the shame of crucifixion. And as he as he faces, faces those harsh realities, he longs to celebrate the Passover with his disciples precisely so that he can offer them hope. And that's why this last meal is such a huge priority for Jesus. And that becomes clear when we look at verse 18. The teacher says, my time is at hand. Very key phrase there. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. See, Jesus knows it's now or never. He knows he's going to die the next day. And so for him, think about that. This is the last time he's going to dine with his followers. This could be incredibly poignant for him, and yet the disciples are expecting it to be a celebration. Passover always was a celebration. Because it was part of this week-long feast in Jerusalem, and then the ceremony itself was built around a special once-a-year dinner. So it was part of a very festive occasion. Probably the, the, the clearest analogy we might have is for those of you that have a big extensive Thanksgiving dinner, that big once-a-year feast. Well, this was similar but very distinctively different. But people would gather with family and friends to celebrate the Passover meal, and then the Passover ritual occurred within the midst of that meal. So this was a time to party. And they would eat, and they would drink, and they would laugh, and they would talk. It would be a very rich time for them. 
And I wonder, do you ever have gatherings like that in your family? Fun, rich, boisterous times with family and friends. We, we certainly do. Our family loves to get together, and we love to celebrate together. And when we do, we sit around the table for hours, and we talk about everything. We talk about sports and work and life and faith, and we laugh a lot. There's a lot of humor at our table because it's just fun to be together. I vividly remember one time we sat at the table so long that one of the younger family members actually fell asleep and did a face plant into his food. <laughs> and oh, did we laugh about that. <laughs> Felt a little guilty, but we laughed. Now, now, I seriously doubt that that kind of thing happened at a typical Passover meal, but, but my point is it was boisterous because it was a celebration, a celebration built around food and family and faith. And so perhaps unlike our extensive family gatherings, unlike our Thanksgivings perhaps, during this festive meal at certain prescribed moments according to a script, the conversation would be interrupted and then the people would solemnly engage in prayers and in blessings. And the purpose of that was to commemorate the way that God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Passover reminded them that God watches over his people, and that's always a reason to celebrate. And so now Jesus is gathering for one final Passover meal with his closest friends. Think about this group. For three years, they have walked the dusty roads of Israel. They've sailed on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples have been with Jesus, listening to him teach for hours about the kingdom of God. They've watched him perform miracles like healing and setting people free from evil spirits. And they've sat and had countless meals together and just talked about life. These are friends who have become like a family. And yet there's one man in that group who no longer is acting like family. He's no longer acting like a friend. He has become an enemy. His name is Judas Iscariot. And Judas has made the decision to head down the path of betrayal. And we don't know exactly why Judas becomes a betrayer. The one thing we learn from Scripture is that he gets paid 30 pieces of silver to become an informer, but that's not actually a lot of money in those days. He didn't get wealthy by ratting out Jesus. And so, so there may be other reasons why he betrays Christ. We know that he was the treasure for the disciples, so perhaps he pilfered some money and he was afraid Jesus was going to catch him. Maybe he felt jealous that he wasn't part of Jesus' inner circle. Jesus spent a lot of extra time with Peter, James, and John, and Judas wasn't part of that. Maybe he just gave in to human jealousy. It's also possible that he was a revolutionary at heart, and he was looking for a military Messiah who would come and incite an armed rebellion against Rome, and when he realized Jesus wasn't going to do that, he got angry. We don't know all the things that motivates this very troubled man. What we do know is this. Jesus trusted him, and Judas rejected that trust. 
He is just like the untrustworthy servant that we read about one week ago in Jesus' last parable. So here's this man who's been part of this intimate little family and he's tragically set on betrayal, but he can't deceive Jesus. You see, Jesus knows what's in the heart of every person, and that's Judas, and that's you, and that's me. And yet, knowing what Jesus knows, as the meal begins, he doesn't immediately blow the whistle on this friend who's become an enemy. And I find myself wondering about that, and I like to sometimes play the what-if game when I read Scripture, and I picture myself thinking, okay, at the start of the meal, they're all sitting there, Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him, and what if he had simply blurted out, looking at Judas, you will betray me. I find myself wondering, what would Peter have done? Mr. Impetuous, <laughs> the guy who acts first and thinks later. I picture Peter leaping across the table and putting Judas in a headlock or something. But, but nothing like that happens because at no point during the meal does Jesus overtly confront Judas. Instead, at some point while they're eating, he actually confronts the entire group. He interrupts the celebration and he says, one of you will betray me. And they all hardly can believe it. And it's interesting that they don't deny it. They all begin to wonder aloud, could it be me, Lord? Is it I, Lord? You don't mean me, do you, Jesus? And in verses 23 and 24, we see how Jesus responds to the betrayal that he knows is coming. Let's take a look. He answered, again, he's answering their question, could it be me, Lord? And he says, he who's dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And then a warning. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, something we need to understand about the way the Passover meal was celebrated, Jesus' answer to their question isn't actually an answer. Because Passover was celebrated as a communal meal, which means every person there is dipping their hands into the bowls. Every person there is grabbing food off the plates. Nobody is is singled out. And why does Jesus do that? I find myself wondering, could he actually want every person there to take a moment and look into their own heart? And based on subsequent events, I think that actually would have been really good for all the disciples. Because even though Judas is the only one who betrayed Jesus, the rest of them all abandoned Jesus that night in one way or another. And if they had really done some inner reflection, perhaps that would have been helpful. Inner reflection is good for us too. As the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart today. See if there be any wicked way in me. Oh, that is so good for us. So I think Jesus confronts the group because he wants everybody to do a little reflection. And yet, based on the comment after that that answer, I think he's mainly warning Judas of judgment. He wants Judas to know that he is going to face the most severe consequences if he continues on his present path. And Jesus is warning without confronting. And I conclude from that, 
that he's still hoping that even at this late hour, Judas might change his mind. You see, it takes a lot for Jesus to give up on someone. And I don't think even now he's fully given up on Judas. The problem is that Judas has given up on Jesus. Judas knows that Jesus knows, and yet he goes through the same charade. He goes through this charade by asking the same question everybody else does. Oh, could it be me? And he knows the answer to that question. And yet Jesus never says, yeah, it's you. He says, well, you, you said it. <laughs> he leaves it vague. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus does not push Judas nor confront him. So Judas has been clearly warned, and now it's up to Judas. He's got a conscience, he's got a free will, and he can decide his own course. And it is so tragic that he rejects Jesus and rushes headlong toward the judgment that is the logical consequences of his actions. You don't betray God's Messiah. And then what happens next? What does Jesus do in response to this betrayal? Does he give up? Jesus presses on with what he's planned from the beginning. And, and I think this is so important to grasp. Jesus does not let betrayal knock him off course. And we don't need to either. I know my own story and I'm beginning to know some of yours. And I know that some of us have been victims of betrayal. Some of us have been betrayed by family. Some of us have been betrayed by friends. Some of us have been betrayed by people in positions of authority. And oh, does it hurt to be betrayed. It hurts so deeply. And yet, we can press on because of the healing that Jesus offers us, because of the forgiveness that he offers us. We can press on and bring our hurt to the cross and we can let it be crucified with Jesus. Jesus presses on through betrayal. And so can we. We don't need to let it hamstring us. And so in response to this betrayal, Jesus presses on and he wants us to understand that there is forgiveness that can be ours because of the cross, then that there's healing hope that results from the forgiveness of God. And that's what he wants the faithful disciples now to grasp. And he makes that meaning clear by taking the symbolism of the Passover and transforming it into the sacred spiritual memorial that we call communion. Now, in case you don't know, Passover recalls the night when God pronounced judgment on the Egyptians who kept the Hebrews enslaved. And that judgment came in the form of death for every firstborn Egyptian male. And that kind of thing would be a huge prod. And it was a prod against an evil pharaoh and an evil culture to get them to set the Jews free. And so on that historic night, God sent death through Egypt but death passed over the Jews. Because as God asked them to do, they took an innocent lamb and they each killed an innocent lamb and after they broke the bones of that animal, they took the blood and they smeared it on the doorposts of their homes. 
And that sacrificial blood was the sign that they were under God's care. And so death passed over. And so God gave the Israelites the Passover ceremony. It commemorates that amazing night. But here's what you may not know. The Passover ceremony itself followed a script that had been largely unchanged for centuries. And in verse 26, Jesus picks up a piece of the Passover bread and he begins to rewrite this ancient script. Let's take a look. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Now at this point in the Passover ceremony, this bread is supposed to be taken out of a basket and it's supposed to be passed around and eaten in complete silence. So for Jesus to say anything at all after his prayer of thanks is jarring. And yet his words, oh, his words truly are shocking. He takes a piece of that unleavened bread and he sits there at the table and he rips it. He says, this is my body. Can you imagine the shock that his disciples felt in that moment? Jesus has just taken the Passover bread and identified it personally with himself. He said, my body is going to be ripped apart the way I just ripped apart this piece of bread. And he's given them a vivid description of what's going to happen on the cross the next day. So when they see that happen, they can tie it back into this event. And what he wants them to begin to understand that this ancient, ancient feast, this ancient ceremony of the Passover, actually has been telling the story of Jesus all along, that he is the fulfillment of the Passover message, that his sacrifice ultimately is what will allow every human being to be passed over and escape the justice of God that we all deserve. And every person will have the ability, if they trust Jesus, to be set free from slavery to sin and to experience the very best that God has to offer. But Jesus isn't done yet. He continues to rewrite that script. And next he does so by transforming the meaning of the Passover cup in verses 27 and 28. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you've ever participated in an actual Passover ceremony, it's a very, very moving ceremony. You may not realize it, but there's actually several cups that are passed during the meal. And each cup has a certain representation. Each cup has its own prayers and its own blessings. And the book of Luke tells us something very powerful. The cup that Jesus now picks up that we just read about is the after-dinner cup. And that is tremendously significant because this after-dinner cup represents salvation. The after-dinner cup represents the Messiah. The after-dinner cup represents the covenant of God, God's covenant with Israel. And so Jesus gives thanks for this cup, and then he says those incredible words, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I can't even begin to imagine how shocked the disciples must be in that moment. God, Jesus has just taken God's covenant with Israel and he's personalized it to himself. And by doing that, he's announcing a new covenant. 
a new covenant that every Jew knows was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. And just Jesus is saying, this new covenant now will come into being through the shedding of my blood. My blood initiates the covenant. Shocking. Now we know that the bread and the wine are not literally the body and blood of Jesus. After all, Jesus is still physically there with them. What he's doing is using powerful, figurative language to say to them something that would shatter their understanding of God's relationship with mankind. He is saying to them, I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one of God. If you haven't gotten it yet, you need to get that now. I am the fulfillment of the prayers and the prophecies expressed in the Passover ceremony. This script of Passover that we Jewish people have faithfully been using for hundreds of years has been talking about me all along. This is the point toward which God the Father has been working. So now, at long last, I can announce that God's new covenant is being established. This is a momentous and shocking rewrite of the Passover script. A rewrite that will reshape God's covenant relationship with human beings. And up to this time, forgiveness was found at the Jewish temple once a year when you took your sacrificial lamb in and you put that blood, you know, you sacrificed the blood of that innocent animal. And going forward, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to be the ultimate Passover lamb once for all. It's my sacrifice that gets you right with God. Things are fundamentally changing. And so the very next day, which will seem like a very dark day, Jesus' body is going to be ripped apart on the cross. Jesus' blood will flow. But Jesus wants them to know in advance that God is in control of these events. There will be incredible purpose in the death of Jesus because by becoming the ultimate Passover lamb, he will make salvation available to everyone. And this is so incredible and so shocking and so outside anything the disciples could have expected. I don't think it made any sense to them. Not then. Not yet. I think when we read Scripture, we realize it's only later, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, that they finally begin to connect the dots. And so this moment when Jesus initiates the first communion service, it ultimately will give them hope, but not later on, not until later on when they fully understand. And I'm very thankful that we live on this side of history because we know the culmination of these events, which means we do understand the meaning of the bread and the cup. And we understand that by the grace of God, the gift of forgiveness that comes through the cross includes us. Thank you, Jesus. And so right now, we're going to share in this moment with Jesus and the disciples. This moment when Jesus personally fulfills the Passover, and he gives us the memorial of communion, and he institutes the new covenant with God. And I'd like to try us to imagine that we're there. Let your mind go for just a minute. Let's picture ourselves there as participants with Jesus in the last meal. 
We're seated around a table in, a, in the large upper room of a house in ancient Jerusalem. We're just a few blocks from the magnificent temple. And we're reclining at the table. We're surrounded by Jesus and John and Peter and Andrew and all the rest of the gang. And we've laughed and we've talked and enjoyed a wonderful meal of roast lamb, Passover lamb. And then Jesus says, here, take this bread and eat it. This is my body. Would you join me and let's take this in honor of Jesus. Now we always take the bread and the cup one right after the other, but if you were paying attention as I was describing the meal in that very first communion, they were widely separated in terms of spans of time. The, the bread happened during the meal, the cup happened after the meal, and, and so it was much later when this happened. But Jesus took that cup and he gave thanks for it. And remember, this is the cup of salvation, the cup of Messiah, the cup of the covenant. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Would you join me and let's drink from this cup. By rewriting the Passover script, Jesus has given all of his followers, those who are there and those in the generations to come, an incredible promise because he's saying that his death paves the way for us to be spared from God's judgment for our sins. His death sets us free from the bondage of sinful desires and behaviors. And because of his death, memorialized in communion, we are forgiven when we confess our sins. We are completely forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. And oh, is that a message of hope for every follower of Jesus. And yet, the hope Jesus offers doesn't end there because he makes one more incredible statement in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's think about the implications of those words. If Jesus won't be drinking that wine again, then obviously this will be his last Passover. And the Jews drank that wine at a lot of meals. Jesus could be saying, this is my last meal forever, but it's certainly going to be his last Passover. So with everything that he's said and done during this meal, he's making it clear, guys, my death is coming. It's near. And yet he encourages them to look beyond his death. To look forward to a time when they will be together in the completed kingdom of God. Jesus is pointing toward that day when God will make a new heaven and a new earth and all of God's family will be united forever. And you see what he's telling them? He's saying you can have hope because there's a resurrection from the dead. There's life beyond the grave. There's life beyond the grave for Jesus and for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. And so each time we take communion, we participate in this powerful memorial of hope. 
the hope that we receive by looking back to the cross and what Jesus did by sacrificing himself for us and the hope that we receive by looking forward to that great day when we all will be with Jesus forever. And oh, what a party is that going to be. You and I get to look forward to a great celebration with the family of God and with our Savior. And that, that is hope. It's a sure and certain hope that Jesus has given to us and it's promised and memorialized through this very last meal. It's memorialized in this celebration that we call communion and that's why it's such a priority for us to share it together each and every week because we all need hope. So hope clearly is Jesus' theme that he wants to drive home during this last meal. But there's a couple other things we can learn from this very distinctive transforming story. And one is based on the, the actions of Judas, we learn that we cannot deceive Jesus. We can try to hide from him, but we can't. From Judas, we learn what should be obvious. It's foolish to become an enemy of God. It's a path that leads only to destruction and judgment. And from Jesus, we learn how to respond to betrayal. We press on. We do not let betrayers sidetrack us from the purposes of God. We do not let betrayers rob us of hope. And from this last meal, we also learn that communion, just like Passover, is a celebration. Because of the cross and the resurrection, we can be forgiven and we can live as friends of Jesus. And that's always a reason to celebrate. And we don't ever need to stop celebrating, regardless of what goes on around us. And yes, we live in a world full of chaos and disorder. And yes, there's war in Ukraine and inflation at home. And yes, our nation is divided over politics and morals. But God is in control as this last meal of Jesus makes abundantly clear. He is working out his purposes in his world. And he's working out his purposes in your life and mine. And when we trust Jesus and we saw last week when we embrace his trust of us then we can live with a sure and certain hope hope for today hope for tomorrow hope for eternity church let's embrace that hope and never let it go Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, there's a part of this story that is so very, very tragic. Because it's tragic to read about the choices that Judas made. And we do grieve for him and for what he did. But mostly we're grateful for Jesus and what he did. And we're so grateful that he wasn't sidetracked by betrayal, but that he chose to press on and fulfill your purpose the purpose of giving us hope. 
Thank you that he was willing to go to the cross and become our Passover lamb so that we can be forgiven, so that we can live in peace with you as friends of Jesus and live each day with hope. Oh, may we cling to that hope fervently. And may it fuel us with spiritual energy and spiritual passion and spiritual vitality. Thank you for the gift of hope in Jesus' name. Amen.